Welcome to How We Raised It, the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropic campaigns from the Australian arts leaders who delivered them. I'm your host, Melissa Smith, and this series is commissioned by Creative Partnerships Australia and Noble Ambition. Welcome to the first episode of How We Raised It, a podcast that explores the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropy campaigns from the arts leaders who delivered them. During the past decade in Australia, we have seen more record-breaking multi-million dollar gifts announced than ever before. These gifts have transformed the cultural sector for the benefit of dancers, actors, writers, researchers, and audiences everywhere. But while we celebrate the philanthropists behind them, The stories of how these gifts came into being often remains hidden. How We Raised It draws back the curtain to hear directly from the individuals who made these campaigns happen. We'll meet the leaders of some of Australia's greatest art companies, the Australian Ballet, Sydney Theatre Company, the National Library and others, and hear how they galvanise boards, fundraising teams and donors into making the impossible possible. I'm your host, Melissa Smith. With almost 20 years' experience in philanthropy and fundraising and Australia's only global fundraiser of the year, I've established fundraising programs at the Powerhouse Museum, Sydney Opera House, as well as in the university sector, where I've raised millions of dollars from philanthropists here in Australia and overseas. As a result, I've had first-hand experience of crazy targets being set that seemed impossible to achieve, as well as those sleepless mid-campaign nights when the challenges seemed too big to overcome. And I've been there when a donor says yes to the sort of multi-million dollar gift that has the power to change lives and communities that makes your heart jump to the back of your throat. I now advise CEOs and board members nationally across the for-purpose sector on how to achieve their noble ambitions in philanthropy and fundraising. Through this series, which has been commissioned by Creative Partnerships Australia, I aim to celebrate the transformational impact through philanthropy. Join me as I explore the role of leadership in securing philanthropic investment at scale, demonstrate the power of philanthropy on a national scale, and champion CEOs, boards, fundraisers, and philanthropists to deliver outstanding philanthropic partnerships in their own organizations. On today's episode, we have Elizabeth Ann McGregor, OBE, former director of the Museum of Contemporary Art, Sydney. She has been Director of the Museum of Contemporary Art Sydney from 1999 until October 2021. She's Chair of the Federal Government of the Creative Economy Task Force, a Board Director of UNICEF Australia and a Board Director of Sydney Swans Foundation. Prior to the MCA, she spent 10 years as Director of the UK's Birmingham Icon Gallery, where she oversaw the gallery's expansion. From the verge of bankruptcy, Lizanne McGregor shares the extraordinary story of engaging artists, audiences, government and donors to secure Australia's largest philanthropic gift for contemporary art at the time and the MCA's transformation into the world's most visited contemporary art museum. Global financial crisis, Simon Mordaunt, three months and a call from Anthony Albanese. This is the story of the Museum of Contemporary Art's $24 million campaign. Thank you, Lizanne, for your time and for joining us on this podcast of How We Raised It. Delighted to be here. Thank you. You grew up, as we know, on the Orkney Islands off the northeast coast of Scotland, and you've dedicated your career to the arts. But I'm curious, what was your earliest memory of feeling really connected to the arts? 
I grew up in the Orkney Islands, which is basically drive as far as you can to the north of Scotland and take a ferry. So it feels pretty remote. And so my first memory of the arts is my parents taking me to museums in Glasgow, particularly to Kelvin Grove Art Gallery. And there was a work by Salvador Dali of Christ on the Cross, which has the most extraordinary perspective. It looks like it's pushing back into space and it's really disconcerting. And I remember as a small child being mesmerized by this quite creepy but extraordinary compelling image. That's extraordinary. It's amazing how different works of art can linger in your memory for all these years. 1999, you came to Sydney with the role as CEO and director of the Museum of Contemporary Art. What were you expecting on that plane ride over? What was sort of, were there butterflies in your stomach? What did you think you might be arriving and setting upon? I had visited Australia a number of times before I came to work here and had actually fallen in love with many contemporary artists, Gordon Bennett and a number of artists who I actually had the great fortune to meet. I knew that the museum was facing very severe financial challenges because just prior to my arrival, the state government had given it a one-off bailout. And my then head of marketing kindly sent me a package of newspaper cuttings, starting with great gallery shame about the art the gallery that nobody goes to, and my all-time favorite, Money for Wankers. So I had a pretty good idea that the context for the museum was pretty rough, but I also knew that there was an incredible amount of support for it. It was unique in Australia in having been set up on a private sector model, like an American museum, very different from our state-run galleries. And I was very interested in whether this conundrum of the negativity, which was clearly putting off funders, could actually be overturned in order to attract some core funding, which of course had started with the university. We should acknowledge the University of Sydney was the core funder at the beginning when the museum first opened. So it was never truly independent in that sense. It always had some public money. And it was really founded upon philanthropy through the power bequest. It's a very interesting part of the history that the money from the university was actually a bequest from John Power, who thought that Australian audiences should have access to the latest developments in art from around the world, essentially from Europe and North America in those days, because in those days, people thought that was where all art was made. Interestingly, it was very much about a one-way street. It was about bringing art and artists here rather than showing our own artists. And that was the premise of his will. And it took some time for the university to, shall we say, get its head around it and even longer for it to honour the second part of the commitment, which was public access. The first part was the setting up of the Power Institute in the university, which happened much earlier. In the year 2000, I was in the Power Institute and the Power Library, and I was writing my thesis on the impact of sponsorship and philanthropy on the MCA. And for me at that time, having you parachute in was like the only hope (laughs) and light I could think about. It was in a terrible, terrible state. Just how bad was it when you did arrive? It was bad. It was really bad. I don't know that it was worse than I knew all that. I knew the context was very hard, but I had been working in Birmingham and I had some experience of dealing with negativity around contemporary art. In fact, it's been a bit of a driving force for me is to turn around the attitude that contemporary art's a load of rubbish, that the person in the street doesn't like it, that it's only for intellectuals, that it's only for people in a certain postcode. Having started my career driving an art bus around Scotland, I was passionate about changing that view of contemporary art. And I saw the museum 
as suffering from exactly that, that there was a terrible problem of perception, which was leading to the financial crisis. So the two things were linked. It wasn't just about money because the museum had opened very successfully in 1991 and had a, had a first few years was very well supported. There were 3000 people signed up to be members in the beginning, which was a lot for a city with no contemporary museum. So there was a great fanfare of positive feeling around it. And it had got into trouble because the money had decreased substantially and it was unable to meet its aspirations. So it was a pretty bad state. Philanthropy would need to play an increasingly important role along with government. How would you describe arts philanthropy in Australia back in 99, 2000? I was pleasantly surprised when I came here. It was one of the bright things about my arrival was the extraordinary level of passion from individuals for this institution. For people like Simon and Catriona Morden, Simon talks about being taken around in a hard hat by Stuart Wallace, who was on the board at the time, one of our great donors. Simon, of course, has become the great donor of the MCA. And I was amazed at the passion that a lot of people had, the Jackson family, Cynthia and Ted Jackson, who inaugurated Primavera, people that my predecessors had really engaged with. And I was very, very privileged to inherit such a passionate group. And I think it was a little rare at the time that people felt so strongly about an institution. However, even they were a little disconcerted at the task I had ahead of me and I had a number of interesting conversations about how we were going to take it forward. Everybody recognized we had to get government funding. There had to be some core funding, and then we could build the philanthropy and the sponsorship off that once we were stabilized. So tell me, you saw just how bad it was. You had some strong supporters, but you had a lot of work ahead. Where did you start? What were your priorities? <laughs> My first priority was was actually with the team. It was important to re-engage the group of amazing group of people who were working at the museum. Again, that passion. And they'd been through a very bad time, a, a terrible restructure, handled not well, inevitably, in the context of you know, looming bankruptcy. And so I started by saying to the team, I wanted them to tell me something they were really proud of and something that they would like to happen. And I really wanted to instill in them a sense that it was a great institution. It wasn't all negative and that they were our best ambassadors. They had to get out there and start correcting this negativity in the community. My second thing was to engage with artists. And one of the first things I did was arrange a dinner where I could actually meet a lot of the artists. So the staff and the artists were first, as well as, of course, the philanthropists. My board was very disconcerted because they brought me out on a trip before I actually started in July. And they told me I had to meet all these government people. And I said, no, my first job is I want one-on-ones with every staff member. And they were a little concerned about that. But for me, that was the strategy. We had to get people behind the institution, re-engage them, get them passionate about it and get them doing their work for me, getting out there in the community and changing that attitude to us. So the staff were really important advocates. But then how did you embark upon securing the financial support? I understand Telstra was absolutely critical. We knew that we had to get more people in. That was the number one thing. You cannot expect public money for an institution that had got to the point where the numbers were so low, less than 100,000 people a year. And so the first thing was to get people through the door. And I told the board in my interview that my one ambition initially was to offer free access. 
because I've always believed passionately, nobody knows the names of the artists that we're showing. It's not Picasso and Matisse. These are the artists of today who will be the Picassos and Matisses of the future. But we had to get more people in and we had to get that confidence back that it was somewhere that people wanted to go. And nobody's going to part with 10 or $15 if the media is telling them it's a load of rubbish. So we had two strategies. One was to deal with the media. The second was to get free access. And I dealt with the media initially by making sure that we spoke to all of the media. At my first press conference, I asked my then press manager, where's the Daily Telegraph? And they said, oh, well, we didn't invite them. It's not really our demographic. To which I said, I, I really can't believe I'm hearing this, you know, politely. This is the biggest selling newspaper in this city, and it is highly influential politically. And why would we exclude a paper that reaches so many people? So we made friends with the Daily Telegraph and all of the media for that matter. The Herald wasn't much nicer to us in those days, actually. So <laughs> I had to do a lot of media chatting and being open and transparent about what we were doing and why we were doing it. I think that's often the problem with contemporary art is people don't go out of their way to explain why it's important. Why should we support this? Why is it for everybody? And so I was doing this messaging and I was very fortunate that one of our then supporters knew someone at Telstra and Telstra was trying to change its image as well. This is 22 years ago. I think they could recognize that an institution like a contemporary art museum could engage with a younger demographic. And so they took a big risk and backed free access. They saw me on television saying, look at this incredible artworks in the museum, but we haven't got enough visitors because they're being put off by this, this door charge. And it's very difficult to promote the unknown. How do you promote something that nobody's ever heard of? So they came on board. They underwrote free access. It cash flowed us out of trouble. We had many sleepless nights, but the numbers started to climb. And started to climb, they did, as I understand it, by 2007, you were almost becoming the victim of your own success with so many people coming through the doors. This really prompted a desire and a need to think about the building itself. Can you tell me a little bit more about the thinking behind the redevelopment and what became the big campaign? There had been two attempts to expand the museum. One before I arrived to create a cinematheque and the other while I was there in my first year where the then Lord Mayor's answer to our financial problems was to create a building with more office space that would generate income for us. It's a very good idea. The problem was it meant the building had to be three times the current footprint. And ultimately, the solutions that were put forward involved knocking down the building and replacing it with a new building, which now sounds wonderful, but there was no way that was going to happen with the level of support for the old building. People love sandstone. So much of Sydney had been destroyed. It was inevitable that it was going to cause a huge outcry. So I was very reluctant to go anywhere near any idea of changing that building. But it became very clear once we hit just about a half a million visitors that the circulation problems the access for people with any kind of disability, people with wheelchairs, families with pushchairs, for goodness sake. There were certain elements of the building you had to get in a lift to. And we were lacking an informal cafe space. We had a beautiful restaurant on the ground floor, but that didn't really serve very large numbers of our audience, which was growing and expecting to be able to have a cup of coffee, which is kind of normal in a museum. So for those reasons, not because we wanted to get bigger, but because we wanted to solve those very specific problems, we undertook 
an exercise, appointing an architect and working quietly with an architect to see if we could solve those problems before we went public. It was a very, very careful strategy in the light of what had happened previously, where there was so much opposition. And we had to do a lot of consultation. I think we did 72 consultation meetings before we went public. Wow. I got very sick of talking about it. (laughs) And here you are still talking about it all these years on. But in hindsight, it's become this extraordinary success story. But at the early stages, both your chair, David Coe, and the foundation chair, Simon Mordant, came on board with a $5 million each, as I understand it. How did that number come about? How did that discussion come about? Were you involved in making that ask? Absolutely. It was very critical to us that we would get the private sector behind it. And certainly this was a big passion also of Simon's. He felt very strongly that the private sector should show government that they were prepared to support this development. We had launched it. We had a price tag of about 50 million, which is exactly what it ended up being. And Simon and David very generously, both families indeed, very generously agreed to kickstart the campaign with 5 million each. And the idea then was that once that was announced, which we did, and there was a bit of chatter around that. I think this is interesting around philanthropy. There were some people who said, oh, you know, grandstanding and so on. I felt very strongly, as did Simon and ultimately David, that they had to stand up as board members and foundation chair and demonstrate that they were giving before they could possibly ask anyone else. So you you couldn't do it anonymously. We wanted to make a big bang. We wanted to make a noise about it. So we did. And we were on the, I think we're on the front page of the Herald with that announcement. And that then allowed us to launch a continued campaign for more philanthropy, but also for me to start trying to persuade the various levels of government that they should also contribute to this. What we were arguing would not only be a great thing for the museum, because by this time we'd gone beyond just solving the physical problems. We now had developed the idea of a National Centre for Creative Learning to provide fantastic facilities for our creative learning programmes, a cafe with a view to die for, a better galleries. But it was never just about getting bigger. It was always about the facilities and the visitor experience, which I think is why it has been so successful. And so you had an extraordinary plan and vision of impact. You had both your chair of the museum on board and your chair of your foundation, so $10 million pledged. And then the global financial crisis hits. (laughs) Yes. How did that feel? We were in the middle of the philanthropy campaign. In fact, we were in the middle of our annual fundraising dinner when the news came out of New York. Everybody in the room knew what that meant, that bank failing. And I remember the the feeling in the room. There was a frisson went through our our (laughs) donors. Simon, to give him credit, absolutely would not give up. You know, we continued to have our dinners and our campaigns. It was very much done on a one-on-one or six or eight people around the table explaining the project to them. We continued to do that and we did pretty well. We got another, I think, almost another 10 million, but it was clear that we were going to get stuck. By this time, actually, the state government had matched the two five million. So we had 20. There we were about 28, 29. And we had to really completely rethink. We realized that we had a problem, which was that people had pledged. Time was going by. The crash had happened. There weren't any new announcements coming out. And so we needed another game changer. And I was really trying to work out what that could be. I knew I had to find a way to get the federal government in. And the federal government had announced, you may remember this, shovel-ready money to stimulate (laughs) the economy. And I'd spend a lot of time 
trying to get through a labyrinthine process in Canberra, we didn't qualify for any of the buckets of money that were available. So it was really, you know, a bit of a nightmare. And the game changer was Simon and Catriona saying to me, ringing me, Simon rang me and said, Catriona and I have discussed this. David Cole was having financial difficulties through the crash, had kind of clearly was dealing with his own issues with his company going under. And we were kind of on our own. And he said, we are going to treble our contribution. And I was like, wow, this would make this not just a game changer for the museum, but I think a game changer for philanthropy. And in this climate at this moment, but the corollary, yes, of course, very Simon, you need to get this federal government that last chunk of money in. We need to get this done. I want this to be the impetus to make it happen. Otherwise, all bets are off. And I read you had three months. That's how much time he gave you to do this? Yeah, I think it was just about three months. <laughs> and when you had that call from Simon saying, on one hand, how extraordinary, we will treble our gift, 15 million, but within three months, you need to secure federal government funding. What emotions or thoughts went through your head at that very moment? I just thought it was an extraordinary thing for him to do and so like him to issue the challenge. <laughs> That's what he is. You know, he and, and Catriona knew exactly what they were doing. They were going to motivate me to make sure I didn't get, you know, fed up and get on the plane and leave. Give me that time frame. I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't made it. I suspect it would have been extended probably, but it was enough to get, you know, really drove me. It was, yeah, I, I had a few sleepless nights as well. <laughs> <laughs> so that sense of urgency was very clever of Simon's. You had three months. What did you do next? I started working out where I had missed tricks in Canberra. And I rang Jeff Dixon and said, I need to be in the chairman's lounge. <laughs> <laughs> and not because of the toasted sandwiches. No, because I knew that's where I could meet all the, actually the advisors, which are the key people to get. Oh, hi. So yes, I, you know, so anyway, I did a bit of that. And I have to credit Marilyn Darling here because she tipped me off. She said, you know, Lisanne, that's how I got the money for the portrait gallery. I hung out in the chairman's lounge. <laughs> Just a couple of things fell into place. Lindsay Tanner, for example, I was on the ABC. I was on Q&A with Lindsay Tanner uh, talking about the budget. And in the green room afterwards, I said, we have this amazing project and it's shovel ready. And for some reason, I can't seem to get a way through. And he said, Oh, well, let me have a look at it. Come and, you know, come and have a chat. So I, I went through it with him and he guided me through it. And I was just reminiscing earlier today on a call with a donor. In fact, I was on a trip to Scotland with a group of donors when Anthony Albanese rang me and said, we're giving you money out of the jobs fund. We're going to announce it tomorrow. I said, Anthony, I'm in Scotland. You can't. <laughs> So I, I finished the trip and came back and it was very funny. And, and Auntie was great. They all turned up. We had the Lord Mayor, the city of Sydney had come in. We had, I think Christina Keneally was the premier by this time. Maurice Yemma gave us the money. Frank Sartor, who'd been such a great supporter when he was at the city, had been critical. And obviously Simon and the other, and the other donors, but mainly Simon. And they all turned up when we were turning the first sod. And Anthony Albanese famously said, we're all very happy about this because it means that Lizanne McGregor can stop politely harassing the members of the government. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you did it politely. So it was very polite. At that moment, it was 53 million in total that was raised yeah. towards this campaign. Yes. In approximately how many years? 
Well, that's a good question. It was probably over maybe four years because of that hiatus in the middle. The reason why it went very fast from there was because we were actually, we were shovel ready because we'd actually road tested the plans because of the state government's commitment. We were able to spend some of the money. We didn't spend any of the philanthropist money. Simon was very clear about that. You can't touch the philanthropy money until the project is secured. But the state government allowed us to spend their money. So we had done all the design work. We'd done all the testing. We had it right up to, we were ready to go to tender when the, when the federal government money came through. We were about to mothball it, literally about to stand down the design team when that phone call came through. In fact, that's partly why I'd gone overseas because I was like, why would I bother anymore? It's all over. And I took this international trip with a bunch of donors and the money came through. And so we were ready, literally, to get on site. We were on site within three months and we completed within 18. So it was actually phenomenal, but it was all that work up front that we did. I'd learned this from doing a previous project in Birmingham. And I said, never again after that one. (laughs) So what advice would you give to other arts leaders or more broadly those in the sector doing projects like this? Because there must've been so many moments you left to go overseas, moments that you didn't think this was possible. How do you maintain that belief and momentum? I think the important thing in all these projects is it has to come from a real need and a real passion for what has to happen. And you just keep, you have to have very clear communication and just keep reiterating it. It was actually another iteration of what I did in the beginning, which was art is for everyone. We can make the MCA accessible. We welcome people from all backgrounds. I did all that work in Western Sydney. Western Sydney saved the MCA. There is no doubt about it. If we had not engaged properly collaborating with Western Sydney organizations and making ourselves accessible, doing things like a partnership with a rugby league club, dispelling the idea that art is only for people from the eastern suburbs. Had we not done that work, there is no way we'd have been able to build on it. And it was a similar kind of thing, messaging very clearly, we need to expand I had one donor who said to me, I don't like your scheme because it doesn't double the size of the galleries. And that's my second thing is don't try and overreach. There's nothing worse than arts leaders who leave a nightmare for their successors. And it has happened all over the world with big buildings, with the the spate of buildings in the 90s and 2000s. Look at the lottery in Britain, big problems with things that were left or things that closed because business plans weren't right. And so there's a whole thing around major buildings, major building expansions that were not viable. We had a proper business plan that myself and my then colleague, Ewan Upston, did very carefully and we did it. And then we tested it with a consultant. We did not bring in a consultant to do it. We did it because we knew we had to run it. So you've got to be very robust in your proposal, very robust because you get tested. So this donor said to me, I don't want to back this project because A, it's not a new building and I only like new architecture. I said, fine, you're not being ambitious enough. You should be doubling the gallery size. And I said, would you like to show me the business plan that allows me to run a gallery twice the size? And I didn't agree with him anyway. I think I have a saying, there's a wonderful Scottish artist called Ian Hamilton Finlay. And I often quote him. He made this beautiful work, which he carved on a block of stone. And it says, small is quite beautiful. And that's my motto for an MCA. Doesn't need to get twice the size, but it needed better facilities for the public. So can I ask that donor who didn't want to support a small but beautiful extension, (laughs) did they end up supporting other things in the MCA? They did, indeed. But they just didn't give to the capital campaign, which is fair enough. And that's the other thing. It's not for everyone. That's exactly right. Some people wanted to support the programs. And that's everybody knows this with philanthropy. You have to find out what makes people passionate and follow that. 
So I wanted to understand more. The role Simon and Catriona played in in that $15 million gift was was so extraordinary. And it had such a direct impact for the MCA and locking in the rest of the campaign. But it was also monumental for arts philanthropy in Australia. Yet at the time, it was one of the largest. I interviewed Patrick McIntyre at STC just recently, and he said that $15 million was very much the benchmark for what they set, for what became their cornerstone gift from the Packer and Crown Resorts Foundation. Tell me, what was the effect of that $15 million gift for the MCA and for the arts sector more broadly? There's no doubt that it was a landmark and a new benchmark for philanthropy, for the arts, and probably even more important for contemporary art. It was a huge vote of confidence in contemporary art and in us as an institution. And I think that was really important. As I said, Simon had been there from the beginning. They'd both been there from the beginning, but something on this level was another scale. It showed how a landmark gift can be transformative. And I think that was what was really important about it. It was transformative for us, but it also was a new benchmark, I think, for the arts and particularly for contemporary art. Eventually, Simon became chair of the MCA and has been until just recently. My question relates to how do you navigate both one of your major donors and your chair? How do you navigate those relationships around governments and also donor stewardship? What would be your advice to other art leaders who need to navigate this? I don't think major donations should buy you automatically buy you a seat on the board, number one. I think that board members have to fulfill all kinds of duties. Yes, they have to give money, but I think there has to be that passion and concern. And of course, you can argue they wouldn't give the money if they weren't passionate, but that's not always the case. So Simon, obviously, having done what he done and being so passionate about wanting to see it through, it made total sense for him to take over the board. So there was a logic to that. And I think that's the important thing is you mustn't allow philanthropy to drive the vision or the workings of the, of an organization. It's got to be something that serves the organization. And that, I think that's why someone like Simon and many other donors that we all know very well, they understand that. They understand where the lines should be drawn. You know, Simon has always been very clear, no interference in the program. He doesn't have any say over the collection, even though he and Catriona also kickstarted our collecting. Those kinds of lines need to be very clearly drawn. And dare I say it in Australia, I would say that's one of the things I found when I first came here was that those lines were not clearly drawn and not clearly understood as they might be, say, in America, where they're much more used to having philanthropists on boards. And we're seeing a situation now where as public funding declines and philanthropy is on the rise, that balance, particularly in our art form, I don't know if it's the same in other art forms, but I think particularly in the visual arts, we're seeing uh, situations where donors want to have more influence over those things like the program. And it's a very, very dangerous trend. And it's something that's being discussed by my colleagues internationally. So how do you manage that? What do you put in place? Obviously, you have to have your ethical guidelines, but there are other ways in which donors or board members can exert influence. I want to make it very clear here, I am not talking from my experience. I'm talking from experience as the president of the CMAM, the Council of International Art Museum Directors. I have seen directors being given subtle pressure to do things that they would not do otherwise unless there was a a financial gift involved or a philanthropy involved. And it's a very difficult thing to navigate. And it's very difficult to be hard line on it in these days where funding is getting tighter and the competition is getting tighter. 
And I think what's important is having those clear guidelines. We have a policy that no board member, board members are not involved in acquisitions. Now, that's not the same in the state galleries. They actually technically have to ask their board for permission to buy artworks. We do not. And that's really important for us as an independent organization. And I think those kinds of guidelines, it can't be an understanding anymore. It has to be clarified in policy. So you've seen the shift from when you first arrived in 2000 to now, I guess there is a greater sophistication and professionalization of philanthropy and managing donors and expectations around this. I think there is, but I think there's also a bit of an overemphasis, if I can say that as well, because ultimately good philanthropy is relationship building. So if you think about the kinds of people who head up organizations, it's very important that the people who head up organizations who are talking to the donors, it's me they want to talk to. Heads of philanthropy are fantastic and they do great jobs, but it's the director. It's the artistic face of the organization. It's the person that's going to put the things on the stage or the artwork in the galleries or make the, make the programs available for children or decide which groups are going to be priorities. These are the people that they really want to talk to. And I believe passionately, these are the people that should be at the heads of the organizations. And we're seeing a trend again overseas where artistic directors are not curators. Directors are not necessarily from these backgrounds. They're coming from more financial backgrounds. And in my view, that is a really big problem. So how much time would you spend on philanthropy in your role as CEO of the MCA? 60 to 70%, I would say. An extraordinary amount. And I think that's very much some of the motivation for doing this podcast series is to actually share the stories of what leadership looks like in this space and the role that leaders play in building relationships, often making the ask from time to time and leading a culture of philanthropy. Can I ask you, where did you develop these skills from though? It's about relationships, yes, but how did you get good at this? Because it's what I'm about. It's about my passion, which is engaging audiences with art. And that I learned on the bus. So the bit of my story that you didn't get is that I didn't do anything with art at school. I ended up doing music. I was going to go to music college. I went to university to study languages. I fell into art history by mistake, seriously. But I developed this passion. I got this job driving this bus with exhibitions on board around Scotland. I was 22 years old. I drove this bus on my own. That's where I developed my passion for. And that's where coming to the museum, where I'd done it in Birmingham, but I'd honed it in, in the museum. I, I love this museum. I love how it's unique, how it actually came out of the power bequest, what Bernice and Leon had done to set it up, how people like Ted and Cynthia were just passionate about it and, and gave work in honor of their, you know, gave money in honor of their daughter who tragically died. It had this kind of really beautiful way of connecting in a way perhaps that government institutions don't quite have the same connection. And so the institution itself I fell in love with, and then I really wanted it to work. And so my passion for making that connection is really what sold it. And you see that in great leaders everywhere in the arts. It's their passion for what they do, whether it's getting the orchestras to perform or what you put on the stage or who you buy or which artists you show. That's what matters in terms of your philanthropy. We've developed a very strong new stream of philanthropy, which is around social impact, which is what I've been talking about. Art doesn't just have an impact because you see a great artwork and it makes you laugh or it makes you cry, but it can actually impact young people's lives quite profoundly. And all the work we do in our National Learning Center, this attracts a different kind of donor, a donor who might not necessarily want their name up in lights or not necessarily even want to come to a curator's talk, 
But do they want to see what happens when Maryland's East primary kids walk into the museum and their faces light up when they see an artwork or they see a name of an artist of someone from their community? And that gives them a sense of belonging. And I think that is the way that really you can build great philanthropy is building that connection because of the passion of, and, and the mission of the institution. Oh, you can see, Liz why you're so good at this. As you walk through the museum and pre-COVID, it was a hive of activity one of the most visited museum of contemporary arts around the world. How does that actually make you feel from all those years, 22 years before when you began at the role, to seeing this, all these children, all these visitors, all this art, how does that make you feel now? If anybody had told me when I arrived in 1999 that we would become the most visited museum of contemporary art in the world, I would have laughed. It's a huge thrill to walk through the museum now and not just see the numbers. And I, I hope post-COVID actually we get away from the numbers game because I'm much more interested in who it is, the diversity, the range of people and their responses. That is what makes me tick, is seeing people respond to art. Post-COVID, art is going to make a huge contribution to the recovery. I really believe that. We found that during the bushfires that people came to the museum to get away from the horrors of, of what they were experiencing, to give them hope, to give them inspiration. And that, I think, is what is the thing that I'm most proud of whenever I walk past that museum. And as you look back now on your tenure there, would there be anything that you would do differently in terms of philanthropy? It's a good question. I think one of the things that happened, and this is a very Australian thing, is because I had to lead, I had to lead the recovery at the beginning, then I had to lead the campaign, and... I was very anxious that it shouldn't all be focused on me. I think this is a problem sometimes that the charismatic leader has to kind of always be out there. And I've gone through periods where I've actually realized that I need to step back and put other people out there. And so getting that balance right, I think I could have probably have done that better. I did that building, but I did it with you and Upston and the rest of the team. It was an extraordinary team achievement and philanthropy, marketing, everybody played a role in that because once we had them, we had to roll out the programs to look after them and then the opening and all those other things. So there was an incredible number of people behind me. So that's a piece of advice I would give is make sure that it's not always about the leader. That's a wonderful piece of advice. Well, look, thank you so much for all that you have done and what you've inspired, the impact of your tenureship at the MCA and what you've helped achieve in terms of philanthropy with the Mordant family has been extraordinary and has inspired so many more big gifts and big visions and bold ass. So thank you so much for being an inspiration, Lizanne. Not at all. Thank you. What an inspiring story of extraordinary leadership from Lizanne McGregor. My three key learnings from this story are, one, have a bold vision. The trajectory Lizanne McGregor took MCA on from financial bankruptcy to the largest gift to contemporary art at the time and the most visited contemporary art museum in the world took extraordinary effort, resilience, and most importantly, vision. She completely turned around the perception of and how people engage with the MCA. She mobilized a whole range of stakeholders to help her and her board collectively achieve that vision. Staff, artists, media, government, philanthropists, and the general public. Two, do the work. Lizanne spoke about the original unsuccessful attempts to build a new building with enormous public pushback against the original designs. So she and her team quietly 
work through a new approach. And in short, it was incredibly robust and undertook extensive consultation. And they had a comprehensive business plan to back it up. They did the work. And because when you finally secure those funds, you have to deliver. The MCA capital redevelopment was shovel ready and delivered in record time. Three, perseverance come what may. Few could have anticipated as the MCA launched its campaign that the global financial crisis would hit and many donors would be impacted, including one of the original cornerstone donors. Even fewer would have anticipated such an enormous gift pledge by the Morden family with a three-month time frame to deliver the remaining commitments from government. Now, Liz Ann took these extraordinary highs and lows of this campaign in her stride, and she kept going. Her persistence and her resilience was driven by an unwavering belief in contemporary art and the role it can play in our community. My recommendations to apply in your own organization are one, an extraordinary vision can galvanize a community to collectively achieve that vision. Two, ensure your case is compelling, robust, and can be delivered. Three, mega gifts and multi-million dollar campaigns are hard. You need the personal and organizational resilience and perseverance. To find this, draw upon what compels you to do the work that you do and the impact it has in your community. Thanks for listening to How We Raised It. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. For more resources and arts philanthropy know-how, head to creativepartnerships.gov.au. For more on fundraising leadership, go to nobleambition.com.au.